Hi, this is John, and today on Theocast, Justin and I are interviewing David Van Drunen on his book, Two Kingdoms. It's a lively conversation and a helpful one. If you want to know about what is the Christian's role in the culture and what is the church's role in the culture, this conversation is extremely helpful from a redemptive, reformed understanding of Scripture. And in the SR podcast, we even dip into common objections specifically dealing with theonomy. We hope you enjoy the conversation. If you'd like to help support Theocast, you can do that by leaving us a review on iTunes and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Plus, we have a Facebook group if you'd like to join the conversation there. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Theocast, encouraging weary pilgrims to rest in Christ. Conversations about the Christian life from a Reformed and pastoral perspective. Your hosts today are Justin Perdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. And I am John Moffat, pastor of Grace Reformed Church here in Spring Hill, Tennessee, just south of Nashville. Justin, my friend, it's a a fun day, special day. Why don't you talk about our book giveaway and also our special guest, yeah, happy to, bro. It's always good to be around the microphone with you uh, to talk about Christ and what he's done for us. And we are excited today to have joining us Dr. David Van Drunen, who is the Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. I think I got all that right. And also an ordained minister of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And we are you know, thrilled to have our, this brother on with us today. We've been helped very much, Dr. Van Drunen, by your work in not only two kingdoms theology, but even on natural law and the biblical covenants and all those kinds of things, and are excited to be able to have a conversation about two kingdoms today and uh, just what that looks like and what that means for the the Christian in the local church. So, Dr. Vandrunen, welcome, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks. Great to join you. Yeah. And so, uh, I introduced Dr. Vandrunen initially, because we're going to be giving away one of his books today. I mean, what else would we do if we've got him on the podcast with us this morning? And so I'm going to hold this up for those who are watching on YouTube. We're going to be giving away Dave's book called Living in God's Two Kingdoms. This is an excellent treatment of a Reformed view of Two Kingdoms theology, and the subtitle is A Biblical Vision for Christianity and Culture. And I'm sure nobody's interested in reading on anything like that these days with everything we have going on. And so our winner in terms of one of our members this week that we will be giving this book to is uh, Jana Show. So Jana, if you are listening to this podcast, you can send us a message or we will try to get in touch with you. I can't ever remember which way this flows, John, my bad. Uh, and we will we'll happily send an this book to you. So we're <laughs> going to send you an email, Jana, basically. Wait for an email from us and we'll get you your free copy of Dr. Van Drunen's book. And if you are listening to this podcast as it release on a release is on a Wednesday and you are interested in getting a free copy of Dr. Van Drunen's book, you can go to any of our social media handles on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and you can enter into uh, the, the frenzy and the fray to try to win a free resource. And we will announce that winner as you're listening to this episode tomorrow, uh, which is Thursday. And so I think I've done everything I need to do there. And now let's transition to our conversation. John, why don't you, I've already done a little bit of this, but why don't you set it up for the listener briefly, and then we will get, we'll get Dave's thoughts on this since he, he is certainly more versed in these things than we are. Yeah. So probably, uh, I mean, it's always a relevant conversation because it's a biblical conversation, but what's going on in our culture and what we're feeling today is uh, there's, there's a lot of confusion on 
two things. What is the purpose of the Christian life? How are we to involve ourselves in the world? And then secondly, and I think even more of a confusion today is what is the purpose of the church and what is the church to be accomplishing? And are we actually accomplishing what God has designed the local bodies to be doing? And that's what uh, the conversation is going to be about today. And uh, we're really not going to work through the book. My encouragement to you is read it, uh, engage it in that way. What I would love to do is just kind of hear from Dave, kind of, uh, I would say, even taking what's going on in modern times and applying it to what I would say a two kingdom theology. There's, 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 there are, there's multiple perspectives that are out there. We're not going to talk about them uh, as far as what is available. But one of the things that does happen in this conversation, when there's a de-emphasizing of the work of Christ in local churches, when we're preaching and we aren't talking about what it is that Christ has accomplished, and specifically even what Christ has accomplished in the work of Adam, right? Where Adam failed, first Adam, Christ succeeds as second Adam. And when this isn't heralded week after week, that all that is required is done. And not only that, the promises of Christ, which is the restoration of all things, when that is not emphasized, you're going to naturally see the work of men uh, then emphasized. And so, Dave, it would be great to hear from you just talking about how it seems like in our culture, Christocentric preaching, the work of Christ, and, and really the what the role of Christians as it relates to the work of Christ is not being emphasized, and because of that, the results of what's happening today. Well, I I'm afraid that's probably true. I you know there I think there's a lot of pressure for uh, for preachers to be very practical and to um, sort of hit the bottom line as people understand that and you know, even if they don't deny the importance of the work of Christ in some sort of theoretical way or in some background way, I think it's just very easy for for preachers who are caught up in the pressure of being relevant to sort of leave Christ in the background Hmm. rather than at the very center of things. It doesn't mean we don't talk about practical things, of course, but Christ has to be, he has to be foundational, he has to be central or else we're not really talking about a Christian view of things uh, any longer. Uh, So I really appreciate that emphasis that you're bringing out. And that's, that's certainly one of the things that, that I'm trying to bring out in, in my book, living God's two kingdoms and in other things I've written and in my teaching. And uh, you know, I, Christians have been debating Christianity and culture issues for as long as the church has existed under different forms and, you know, the different kinds of debates that have gone on. And I think there is some danger of it becoming abstract or somehow a different debate from our debates about salvation, our debates about the work of Christ. Mm -hmm. And I, I really think that's a mistake. And so that's part of what I'm part of what I was trying to show in that book. And I think even for some, uh, for some ideas or uh, some aspects of doctrine that are really not distinctive of what I'm saying, I think the way I kind of tie it into the two Adams theme and to the broader covenant theology is, is somewhat distinctive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, one of the things that we discuss all the time here on our podcast is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save sinners and the centrality of Christ in terms of the life of the church and the mission of the church and all those things. And even the language that you just used about how Christ is often 
removed from the foreground where he should be and is not because anybody means to do this, uh, but he is sort of relegated to the background. And we really put the Christian life and the Christian up in the foreground and make that the focus. Uh, I was very encouraged by your book when I read it for the first time, even just in the ways that I thought you were super clear about how uh, cultural activities that we engage in are important. We're not saying they're unimportant. We need to be engaged in loving neighbor and all of those things, absolutely. But our cultural activities don't usher in the new creation. But instead, Christ is the one who has done that. And you even used beautiful language about just the the first Adam, uh, after, after the first Adam failed and before the second Adam, Jesus came. Like nobody accomplished the task of the first Adam. But once the second Adam came and did it, Nobody needs to anymore. And that's a, that's a remarkably helpful uh, concept. And I, I think it's important for the Christian in the pew, you know, to put it proverbially like that. Do, would you want to talk anything about that, just how our cultural activity does not usher in the new creation, but that's Christ's business, that's Christ's work? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to uh, say a few things about that. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that kind of got me thinking along the lines of what I developed uh, mm-hmm. in that book. Uh, there's, there's some influential writers on Christianity and culture issues who have really pro- portrayed the, the Christian life or the Christian, cult- Christian cultural engagement as a sort of a picking up of the work of the first Adam. So yeah. basically the mm-hmm. idea that uh, we have uh, you know, we, we, we look at Genesis 1, we see that God at the beginning gave Adam this great commission, this cultural mandate mm-hmm. um, in which he was to, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, exercise dominion, subdue the other creatures. And, and then the, the, as the story sometimes is told, of course, there was the fall. Uh, and then, you know, and human beings just, you know, kind of struggled with this task that they had. And then Christ comes, and uh, a big part of what Christ's redemption does is sort of gets us back on on the on track, you know, gets us mm-hmm. back on the first Adam track, as yeah. if now we can kind of do what Adam was supposed to do and um, kind of carry on. Um, and for a lot of people, that seems to be a compelling story, uh, but it doesn't seem to me that that is the way that Scripture portrays it. Right, uh, and if if you think about uh, you know the way that that Paul puts it um, in two extremely important places in Scripture, Romans five and First Corinthians fifteen, uh, he puts it in terms mm-hmm. of two atoms: yeah. uh, the first Adam, the last Adam. Uh, uh, the first Adam did have this cultural task, and he should have been obedient, and God would have blessed him mm-hmm. um, richly if he had been obedient. He wasn't, so. What happens then? What's the what's the solution uh, to that? And as Paul puts it, it's not just Paul says it, but I think Paul kind of crystallizes, Paul crystallizes it. it exactly. Right. And you know, he says um, the answer to the first Adam's fall is the last Adam, mm-hmm. the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's it's really interesting. Um, it it's not you know the next Adam, mm-hmm. it's the last Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Means there are no there are no more Adams. Yeah, there's only right. two. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, what Paul is getting at is that uh, Christ accomplished what the first Adam was supposed to accomplish. And ultimately, that means he accomplished the new creation, right? He, mm-hmm. he is the one who, mm-hmm. by whose work, uh, 
the human race reaches its original destination, its original goal, uh, which is that new creation. And um, his work, uh, which the New Testament makes so clear, his, his work is sufficient. Uh, there's yeah. nothing to be added to his work to bring new creation, uh, mm -hmm. to accomplish the kingdom. Uh, and what we are called to do is to trust in him. Uh, and as yeah. we trust in him, we have all the benefits that he has won for us as the last Adam. And so, I mean, th that's just putting it in that way, that that's mm -hmm. something that all reformed people should just affirm. But I, I, I'm not sure always that people think about the implications of that for thinking about Christianity and culture issues. If sure. Jesus is the last Adam who has who has won and accomplished the kingdom, the new creation mm -hmm. for us, then is it really correct for us to think of ourselves as sort of new Adams, um, right. getting back on the original Adam track? Um, now, it's, it, I, I think it's true that we still have certain responsibilities that sure. resemble that original commission. I mean, we, are, mm -hmm. we still have a certain task of, of of ruling this world under God's lordship, sure. Uh, to look at it through the grid of doing what the first Adam was supposed to do, I think, mm -hmm. is just very confusing. Sure. Um, in terms of our broader conception of Christology, our broader doctrine of salvation. Yeah, and there are certainly responsibilities that we have under the covenant God made with Noah. You know that would would govern this common kingdom. Um, right. There's two things I would love to to maybe trace out some of those implications. Uh, that you were even referring to. There's a lot of implications of understanding the work of Christ this way for, you know, with respect to issues of church and culture, Christianity and culture and the like. But maybe really quickly before we trace out those implications, you were talking about the the task or the the charge of the first Adam. And had he obeyed God, you know, there was eternal blessedness that awaited him and all of his posterity. This is not a podcast about covenant theology proper, but we do talk a lot on Theocast about covenant theology. And it seems to me, and I know John agrees, that really, really um, vital to this conversation and this understanding is an affirmation, not just of covenant theology in general, but of the covenant of works in particular. Because if a, if a person rightly understands the covenant of works that God made with Adam in the garden and how should he have obeyed that charge, that commission, how he would have earned eternal life and blessedness for himself and his his posterity. But then in breaking that covenant by violating it and eating of the tree that he should not have, he failed that test and therefore uh, plunged himself and all of us into ruin. Could you talk for just a minute about the importance of the covenant of works even when it comes to this two kingdoms understanding and even thinking about the work of Christ and what that means for us? That'd be great. Sure. I'm not sure I can do it in a minute, but if you give me, maybe <laughs> no, please, I mean, take several, it. take several, <laughs> yeah, take yeah. your time. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I really appreciate your, uh, uh, what you just said and your appreciation and wanting to promote the idea of the covenant of works. I do think it just is, it is very foundational for, uh, for a lot of other things. Um, and I, for, for my own work, I just you know, trying to, to connect our Christianity and culture debates mm -hmm. with our with covenant theology, I think, is just it's really important, and mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's remarkable that as much as so many people with reformed convictions want to talk about the covenants or covenant theology, 
sometimes that drops out of of focus when we're talking about Christianity in this conversation, which is remarkable yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I've that's one thing that has been sort of a burden for me is to say, you know, can we can we reconnect these, mm-hmm. these lines of discussion because they seem yeah. so dependent upon each other in many ways. So, okay, yeah. so uh, yes, if I think if we believe that God uh, entered covenant with Adam and uh, at the beginning and with uh, through Adam with his posterity yet to be born. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if Adam had been obedient, God would have blessed him with the, you know, with that same blessing that we are looking forward to now, that, that new creation, that eschatological glorification. Right. Um, that's, that's, that's really important. And, and that means that if uh, that, since Adam failed at that, there's this this huge looming question as to you know how will uh, how can human beings attain that goal if the one who was commissioned to accomplish that at the beginning uh, failed mm-hmm. miserably at that task? And that's where you know the, the idea then of Jesus coming as a last Adam, which meant he was coming under a new covenant of works. Uh, he mm-hmm. came to accomplish that, to, to, to pay the penalty for violating that first, but also, yes. and this is really important, also to, to do the work, to yes. obey God's law perfectly, to love God and neighbor uh, mm-hmm. as, um, as human beings are, are called to do. Uh, so, I mean, this is just fundamental uh, Christian th- theology, certainly mm-hmm. fundamental reformed theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if that's the case, then uh, our obedience as Christians and our calling in this world, uh, we are not doing these things um, as the first Adam was called to do them or as Christ accomplished them because we are not under a covenant of works. Uh, mm-hmm. we thank God for that. I mean, Amen. we're we don't want to be under a covenant of works. That would, no. be, that would mean death for all of us. And so... Yes. Uh, we're under the covenant of grace, uh, right. and and you know this is I, I think part of the difficulty g- getting back to the, the the previous the previous question. If we see ourselves as sort of new atoms mm-hmm. called to do the original Adamic work, I mean that implies it's not necessarily people don't necessarily mean this, but it right. would seem to imply that we are under a covenant of works. I mean that's how that original commission came to Adam. That's right. Um, the creation mandate was part of the covenant of works and yeah, do this and live. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, right. and so, I mean, we don't want to say that. No. Right. Uh, and, and so I think that the question is, can we just, can we take that original Adamic mandate and just strip it out of its original context and then just put it on Christians today? Mm. Well, that, 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 that seems problematic. And, and this is why I think, as as part of this of my attempt to frame these Christianity and culture debates within a within a covenant theology, the Noahic covenant after the Great Flood, recorded at the end of Genesis eight, beginning of Genesis nine. This is where this becomes important mm-hmm. because we say, okay, well, what um, don't we still have some sort of creation mandate uh, mm-hmm. after the fall? Don't we still have some kind of creation mandate as Christians? And I say, yeah, we do. But it comes to us not sort of directly 
from Genesis 1, but but it comes to us, and I say filtered or refracted through this Noahic covenant. This is the creation mandate that comes to sinners. (laughs) This is the creation mandate that says, okay, now you're living in a fallen world, Mm -hmm. right? That God is preserving through his common grace. And you look at, you know, those kind of basic moral requirements in the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9, they kind of resemble those in Genesis 1, but they don't come in exactly the same way. And we can see that they're geared for a fallen world. Yeah, retributive justice and things of that nature. Right. I mean, yeah. Uh, He who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, uh, Genesis 9, 6. Right. Uh, We don't find that in Genesis 1. Why not? Well, I mean, there were no, there's no violence. Uh, There was no bloodshed uh, before the fall. You didn't need that. But Mm -hmm. After you know, at, after the fall in this preserved world, um, you know, if if we are going to be responsible, if we are going to rule creation in some way, uh, now we have to have a justice system. We 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 have to think about how we correct and punish uh, uh, wrongdoing. And so, it, it just seems to me so much more helpful to say in, instead of looking at Genesis one as our you know, that's sort of our go-to text mm-hmm. in thinking about our cultural responsibilities, making us new atoms. Well, no, it's really more like Genesis 9. Agree. Yeah. Um, you know, this is how it comes to us in a fallen world. And mm-hmm. I mean, p- people ask me this question a lot. Is like you know, people who are vaguely familiar with what I'm doing uh, on these issues and they'll say, well, why don't you just look at creation? I mean, can't you just talk about the creation order? And doesn't that kind of get you to the same place? And Basically, what I've just been saying is my, is, is my explanation for right. why I, I think it's much more helpful to look at this through the grid of the Noahic Covenant, well, Genesis 8 and 9. If you're new to Theocast, we have a free ebook available for you called Faith versus Faithfulness, a Primer on Rest. And if you've struggled with legalism, a lack of assurance, or simply want to know what it means to live by faith alone, we wrote this little book to provide a simple answer from a Reformed confessional perspective. You can get your free copy at theocast.org slash primer. If I may briefly, yeah, in the Noahic Covenant, you do get not only the principles of proportionate retributive justice that we've already acknowledged, but there still is uh, the defense and the cultivation of procreation through marriage and the family. That's implied. Mm-hmm. I mean, so those are things that every human being, Christian or not, should be concerned to protect in the common kingdom. And yeah, I agree that it's very helpful when we can point that out, that we're not necessarily going back to the Adamic covenant, the covenant of creation, the covenant of works, but really the covenant God made with Noah to see how we now live in this fallen world that's being sustained so that the Redeemer can come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 To add to that, probably the, you know, the greatest questions that a lot of humans ask is, what does God think of me? What must I do? And and then mm. once we deal with the relationship between sinner and sovereign, now it's, what, what do I do with all this brokenness around me? Mm. And, um, you know, there's, there's a thousand and one questions or answers that are provided. I think what's been helpful for me in my transition from a dispensational to reform perspective is uh, the introduction of a redemptive historic understanding of Scripture. Mm. Because when you, Justin, what made me think about this is when you say the fall, we're really talking about in Genesis 3, the whole earth is cursed, right? Mm. Uh, Romans says we're all groaning under this curse. So from Genesis 3 forward, we're not dealing with a world that is simply fallen apart and needs to be put back together. 
Mm-hmm. We're dealing with the world that is cursed, and that cursed is held by God, and he's the one who releases it. And obviously, Jesus is the one who comes, and he is the restorer of all things. So now we have to look at pain and suffering and what's going on in this world and the fracturing and we have to ask, what is our role in this? Like, how, how do we handle this? So uh, I would love to, to kind of talk about and hear your thoughts on when we understand the Bible from a redemptive historic understanding, we understand the arc of it and our role in it. I think it changes your perspective of when you look at pain and suffering, we can't abolish it now, but what can we offer? What What is the responsibility of the Christian that is now a child of God dealing with a world that is, is, is in utter chaos? Yeah, I mean, I, I I think the the prime thing that we offer as Christians is something that nothing but Christianity can offer. That's right. Uh, which is the fact that there is uh, there is forgiveness of of sins, and there is an everlasting inheritance that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is hope of resurrection in a new creation mm-hmm. in which there is no more brokenness. There's no more disease. There's no more injustice. Um, ultimately what we offer is, is an eschatological hope. Uh, and I think it's just, it's just essential that when we, when we proclaim the gospel to unbelievers and as we are instructing believers within our churches, that we are very clear that, uh, that becoming a Christian, living as a Christian in this life does not exempt someone from suffering, or it's not a promise to lessen suffering. In fact, I think we could say it's actually just the opposite of that. Yeah, theology because of the cross. We'll, yeah. we'll have to, I mean, we as Christians have to, we have to continue to endure all the ordinary sufferings of this world, right? Mm-hmm. Sickness and yeah, we are not financial struggle right. and relationship break. I mean, uh, political unrest, war. I mean, all those things are, I mean, Christians have to endure those alongside non-Christians, but we also have the additional suffering of uh, being being persecuted, being reviled for the sake of Christ. Um, and so that's just part of what the Christian life is. And our, 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 our hope within that, our comfort, our consolation is the fact that we belong to Christ. And already by his spirit, he is, he gives us uh, incalculable comfort in the midst of the sufferings of this life. And we know that there's a, there's a time coming when he will wipe every tear from our eyes, as the scripture says. Now, I, I would also add, I mean, I think as part of it is that we, of course, we as Christians, um, can and, and do rightly participate in, what we might say are common grace activities in this world that can lessen suffering to some degree. I mean, Christians can become doctors or nurses and contribute mm-hmm. to the healing of illness. Um, and of course, many, many other uh, examples. But the, the, the thing is, I mean, it's not, we as Christians don't do those things uniquely, right? I mean, we, right. we can join unbelievers and we ought to join unbelievers who are interested in these things uh, as well. And those are good things. That's right. so we want to affirm that these are good things. But the the ultimate answer to the brokenness and the mm. curse of this world is not advances in medicine or economic development, um, however beneficial those might be for day to day life. But it's 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 that everlasting hope that we have in Christ, yeah. and that's yeah. what the church has to proclaim. I mean, that's, Amen. Hey, real quick, you've mentioned a couple of times. I think it'd be helpful just to um, the theological understanding of common grace. 
I, I think that was really helpful for me in understanding kind of God's common grace to all humanity versus his salvific grace. Sure. Yeah, this is um, this is this is an idea that's that's been in uh, been a part of Reformed theology really since its beginning. But I think it's it's it perhaps become more emphasized or more clear as a as a theological category uh, mm-hmm. in more recent years. So the the basic idea is that uh, God's grace comes in some kind of a twofold way in this world. Um, of course, what we're most interested in, what we tend to emphasize is God's saving or special grace, uh, which is that grace by which he forgives sins, by which he um, makes us his children, gives us everlasting life. Yeah. Um, that comes through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but this other form in which grace comes, it's common grace, is a grace which is uh, which he gives to this world in general. Uh, right. It's a preserving grace. It's not a grace that brings new creation, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a grace which sustains this world that maintains the cycles of nature that um, gives uh, the blessings of rain and sunshine uh, to this world at large. And uh, so Christians and non-Christians both benefit from this, this common grace. Uh, and so I think as um, not not all Reformed theologians, but as many Reformed theologians have have put it, that this the the Noahic covenant after the flood, which we were talking about earlier, uh, this is a common grace covenant. It doesn't yes. promise redemption. No, it doesn't say anything. It doesn't promise a Messiah. It doesn't talk no. about forgiveness of sins. Uh, what it does is it promises the preservation of this yeah. present world and yeah. the cycles of nature and the sort of the. The basic structures of family life and um, you know a system of justice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I like think that's that. super so, helpful. Um, so, so, so even these these common ordinary things that we participate in alongside unbelievers, it's not as if these things are independent of of right. God or of God's God's supervision, right. God's governance. Uh, it's not that they're utterly secular as we sometimes they're not, refer right, to them in our right. culture. That, yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, these areas of life are accountable to God. Yes. Um, they're in covenant with God, not not through the new covenant, not, not redemptively, the but, Noahic right. covenant. Yeah. And so, I think this is I think this is a a biblically sound way, a theologically helpful way, hmm. to be able to explain that all areas of life are under God's control, and we are responsible mm-hmm. to God and accountable to God for how we conduct ourselves there, without simply collapsing hmm. all areas of life into the work of the church and, right. and, and, and not maintaining the important distinction between these yes. other areas of life and what uh, the church is accomplishing. All right. Well, you, you're kind of already going there. I, I think it'd be great for us to maybe riff for a minute on how two kingdoms theology does keep the mission of the church clear, which makes the church more effective in what the Lord has instituted it to do. But then it also, on the other hand, it liberates the Christian to be involved in good pursuits in the culture in society, uh, in, in doing various things motivated by love of neighbor. So maybe we could, maybe we could go there for a few minutes, just like two kingdoms theology and how that helps the church. And then how that helps us as Christians be engaged in the culture. Yeah. And I would just add the difference between, 
assuming that we're going to actually see progress in this cursed world versus no, you're actually playing out the second greatest command. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Let, let me begin just a, a brief note. I mean, I, you, you're, you're using the term two kingdoms theology. I've never used that term and I, I people okay. have different reasons for <laughs> using different terms. Um, I'm happy to I, not I, use it then. <laughs> well, I, you, I, I'm not telling you you can't use it. I'm just gonna, <laughs> I, I just want to briefly say why I don't use it. Um, sure. And, you know, you can see whether it makes any sense. So what do you say? You don't need to tell me. So um, <laughs> I, I tend to I, I tend to think of the two kingdoms as as a doctrine or as a mm. maybe a theological category. Okay. Yeah, that's that, helpful. That it fits as part of a broader reformed theology or sure, a broader totally. covenant theology. Um, it, it's not a. I, I I don't think you you mean it by this, but I, I think I, do not. I think perhaps sometimes people when they hit two kingdoms theology that it sort of implies that there's some kind of idiosyncratic, esoteric, thing. like yeah. weird, the, you know, theological thing going on here. And sure. it's actually just, uh, it. I think the two kingdoms doctrine or category makes sense within a broader totally. reformed or covenant theology. So that, that's, uh-huh. um, I, I just want hey, to I, hey, I we can it. say two kingdom it. perspective. Two <laughs> kingdom, two, <laughs> the doctrine of two kingdoms. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, I yeah, it's it just, you know, yeah. I mean, whatever terms we use, Sometimes we just have to explain what we mean by yeah. that. Anyway, yeah, absolutely. And precision is good. Clarity is Especially good. Especially in today's world. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, okay. Getting to, to uh, yeah. Uh, why does the two kingdoms doctrine or this mm-hmm. two kingdoms idea, why does it, how does it help? First of all, you're asking for the, the church. Understand the mission of the church. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's great. So the, the idea of the two kingdoms, uh, at least the way, it seems to me, I think this is in line with historical reformed ways of thinking about this. You might think of these two kingdoms, these two rules of God in terms of common grace and special grace. It, it, they basically correspond. Um, or these two covenants, God's mm-hmm. rule through the Noahic covenant, God's rule through you know Abrahamic, Mosaic, new covenants yeah. uh, in progressive stages of redemptive history. Um, God rules this whole world, but he carries out his rule in this twofold way mm-hmm. through preserving this world in which he's mm-hmm. truly ruling the world. Yeah. Uh, but he's also ruling in this special way by way of redemption, by way of saving a people for himself and preparing them for this new creation, uh, which he's bringing. And in, uh, yeah, I, I think we, we could talk about this for a long time potentially, but to, I, I think to, 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 to try to put it really briefly, um, the church is not an instrument of God's common grace. Uh, the, the church is an institution created by his special grace to serve the purposes of this special saving grace. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, you know the, there, there are so many institutions or, you know, uh, uh, bodies, uh, whatever you want to call them in this world, right? We have political institutions and legal institutions and educational institutions and economic institutions. And I think you can see all of these, they're, they're, they, they, they kind of arise organically through the, uh, the Noahic covenant, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, as we carry out our responsibilities in this world, um, we're going to create governments and courts and businesses and schools and they they carry out these various tasks and that's great that's fine it's interesting that when jesus came you know he didn't he didn't establish any of those things right he didn't establish a government 
didn't establish courts. He didn't establish a school. He didn't establish a business. Um, in a sense, he didn't have to do any of that. I mean, those things already existed. Um, he, he said, uh, he, he, he only established one institution, uh, Matthew 16, I, right, I will right, build right. my church. That's the, right. oh, he never said that about any other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, uh, and I give to you, Peter, uh, on behalf of the other apostles, I, I give to you the keys of the mm-hmm. kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus is talking about establishing this church, um, he says that the gates of hell are not going to prevail mm-hmm. against it, right? This is this is an unconquerable kingdom. And what is the one thing he wants us to know about this kingdom? It has the keys of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, he doesn't give the keys of the kingdom to any other institution. Yeah, uh, He doesn't give it to the government, <laughs> or these key, he doesn't give them to the government. He doesn't give them, um, he doesn't even give them to the family, mm-hmm. I mean, per se, right? I mean, That's he right. It's good. Church. Right. That's right. Right. And, uh, and, and I think this is, to me, that, that this is, this fits in with a, with a two kingdoms doctrine, because I, when he's talking about the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about this redemptive kingdom, this everlasting mm-hmm. kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, the church is serving that kingdom. Yeah. Right. And an eschatological kingdom, even. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. have the right. physical sword, right? So it's right. not, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't commission the church to be taking over political functions or to mm-hmm. take over economic functions. Um, it's not even, not, not to take over the family's functions, right? Mm-hmm. And these other institutions are, are good. They have their place. They're important. Um, but those other institutions are supposed to be doing certain things, right? The church is to be doing what Christ gave it to do. Yeah. Uh, what business does the church have of making up its own functions? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we are called the church to, to administer the keys of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And as Jesus explains it, I mean, th- this is about, you know, what, what um, is bound uh, uh, on earth shall have been bound in heaven, but yeah. you know, what's loosed on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So, this is about opening and shutting the gates of the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's obviously a, a lot more to say here, but th- th- there's so much pressure on churches to, to do all sorts of things, to be sort of all purpose organizations that are going to, you know, serve the city. And, you know, they're going to, you know, be, be, they have this ministry, you know, quote unquote ministry here and ministry mm-hmm. there. And some of these things are, they're fine. They're good in and of themselves, we think, what? Why is the church actually doing these things? That's right. The right. doesn't talk about the church doing these things. Right. The church has enough struggle doing <laughs> what Christ gave it to do. That's ministering right. Ministering the word and sacraments. Exactly. Right. Um, diaconal work, ministry to its own members. That's uh, right. Shepherding, discipling, disciplining uh, mm-hmm. its folks, evangelizing. I mean, those are pretty. Those are pretty weighty. <laughs> difficult, time-consuming tasks. So, mm. the church ought not to be getting distracted yeah. by trying to do all sorts of other things. Yeah. And I think the two kingdoms idea helps us see that. Yeah, because, absolutely. So, anyway, helps I us to see. To follow up, but that's... Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, as I'm listening to you, there's a lot of things that I want to talk about. I'd love to talk about the mission <laughs> of the church longer, but we, we, we won't go there right now. But I mean, effectively too, I think it helps us see a, a, an understanding of two kingdoms of doctrine, helps us see how um, the church as an institution has a certain mission that it needs to give itself to. That's right. But then Christians, individual Christians can be involved in any number of activities and pursuits and even found other institutions in this common kingdom of the, the world 
to do good to neighbor, pursue justice, et cetera. Yeah. 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 Right. So I, I guess that's getting to your second question yeah. before, right? Yeah. So that, I think, yeah, that's, Somewhat, that's yeah. great. And I think that's really important. Uh, mm-hmm. th- this is what I've just been saying is not at all designed to say, well, these other things are unimportant or Christians should just forget about them and just just focus on evangelism. I, no, I mean, uh, we we do have responsibilities in this broader world. We have, we as Christians have responsibilities in the other kingdom, in the God's common kingdom. That's right. Uh, and yes, I, I I like the fact that you 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 bring out that there's sort of this liberty that that this implies for Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, we as Christians, you know, if, if if the church was in charge of all these other things, I suppose we'd have to do all of these things under the direction of the elders of the church, telling us, you know, if you want to be involved here, here's how you do it under us. Uh, no, I mean, we, we as Christians are we are freed to serve God and serve our neighbor in all Amen. sorts of different ways, yeah. depending on what, what, you know, what sort of opportunities do we have? What sort of skills do we have? What sort of talents yep. do we have? What sort of, what are we interested in even? Do we have? Yeah, yeah sure. Right. Yeah. And, and so to say, well, that, you know, maybe um, running medical clinics is not actually what the church ought to be doing. It's not saying Christians with medical training, uh, shouldn't be doing that. No. I mean, mm-hmm. um, go out and find a medical organization that's doing good work. Or as you're saying, go ahead and found a, a medical organization that, that does this work and gather like-minded people together who can who can do this work well. Yes. And right. serve, you know, be an right. instrument of God for serving yes. your neighbor by doing this. It doesn't have to be the work of the church in order to be legitimate and mm-hmm. meaningful and Christ honoring. And, uh, and in fact, I would say um, it's going to be more Christ honoring yes. and beneficial for your neighbor if you're not doing it under the guise of the church. I think that just confuses what's going on. The elders of the church, hopefully, were not appointed to their, t- they were not <laughs> set aside, appointed to that task because they have expertise in medicine or expertise in economic development or whatever. <laughs> um, hopefully it's because they meet the kind of criteria that Paul lays out in Titus one or first Timothy three, That's right. which have nothing to do with those sorts of things. The, I mean, very, some of those things that you just said, like in the last 30 to 45 seconds, kind of blow the minds up of oh, yeah. so many evangelical Christians, because it is so different than what they have ever been taught to think in the mm. church because they've they've grown up or cut their teeth in a context where it is the mission of the church and the church needs to be engaged in a b and c and how in the world could it be better and more christ honoring for the church not to be doing these things formally but for us to just be going and doing them ourselves you know in love of neighbor it it really is kind of a category paradigm shift for so yeah. many people yeah yeah i'm a i'm a uh I know this doesn't sound like a big deal, but my neighbor has a massive yard. So it can be like an hour and a half, but I'm on my neighbor's yard yesterday and I didn't tell him we have a ministry at our church. We mow people's lawns. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. it's just a nice, kind, loving thing to do. And I don't need to blame the church for it. It's just, that's what love of <laughs> yeah. neighbor means. <laughs> yeah. So, well, what, one last thing before we move over to the SR podcast is that we always kind of love to think about this from a pastoral perspective. Like, how, how do we shepherd people here? How do we love on them? And and it is hard as a, two pastors, and, and I know that uh, you as well, shepherd, and I can even hear your shepherd's heart in this, which is yeah. what Justin and I love. But, you know, pastors receive a lot of pressure to be involved in a lot of things. And 
it would be great just to kind of close this out and just to to love on congregants, but also love on pastors and say, this is how you shepherd people who really feel that pressure to be involved in social justice when we really need to focus in on the gospel advancement in our local context, caring for and caring for the burdens of each other. And then also uh, how do we advance the gospel in our community? Yeah, boy, there's, I guess there's so much we could talk about there. I mean, I, you know, there is um, one way that I sometimes put it when I'm talking to churches about this, you know, is um, remember the incompetence of your pastor. <laughs> um, so that's not, you know, usually what people would expect to hear, but it's received. Um, and, yeah. it's you know, pastors wouldn't typically want to be called uh, incompetent, but actually a lot of pastors, I mean, actually, they, they really appreciate this because, um, you know, at least most pastors, there may be some um, self-deceived pastors, but most pastors know that they're incompetent on all sorts of things. I mean, sometimes we sort of feel incompetent just on the things we're supposed to be doing, just ministering the word. And yeah, you know, we're insufficient. Yeah. We feel our own weaknesses, but, you know, we know that we're not, you know, uh, at least most pastors are not trained in medicine. They're not trained in uh, accounting. They're not trained in law. They're not trained in engineering. I mean, what, whatever, I mean, it's, uh, they're not trained in community development. And, you know, mm-hmm. when, um, I, I think it can be really helpful for, for, uh, just ordinary Christians to remember that their pastors are not omnicompetent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and their, their, el- their elders are not omnicompetent. Yeah. And so uh, don't expect them to be experts on everything. And therefore don't expect your church to be the yeah. kind of thing that can micromanage mm-hmm. um, every possible area in which Christians can offer good service uh, to yeah, God and neighbor. Good. And so I think that can be helpful for both pastors and congregants, congregants. Yeah. to hear. And uh, at the same time, you know, I think it is, I, I do think pastors have this responsibility to help their, their, the people under their care to be growing in wisdom. I think mm-hmm. that's a better way to think of it is right. that we're, we're, it's not as if we're indifferent to how people, to how people under our care are carrying out their ordinary cultural endeavors. Uh, I mean, we appreciate it when they care enough to want to know how to do it well. Yeah. Um, and even though we're not called to micromanage their broader cultural lives, um, what we are called to do is to help them grow generally in wisdom. Mm. And as we minister the word of God to them, as we step alongside them pastorally and help them just try to encourage them, uh, I think we are we are helping them become wise people who can then go out and make better decisions yeah. and serve other people better. And I think sometimes there are, there are times when you know if people come to us and want to know you know how do I do this or you know something that uh, you know we say well I we, we keep I can't give you a thus says the Lord about about how to do this, but I can sometimes help people ask the right questions That's good. and to put things in the right perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that can be tremendously helpful, even if we're not going to take the last step and say, okay, this is what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, right, so, I, I guess those are a few thoughts. No, so, that is really helpful. Those are I appreciate super helpful. Right, so like maybe very quick parting shot here. Like if, if you're talking to the, the average congregant, who's a church member, they're not in vocational ministry. They've got a nine to five, maybe they're married, maybe they got kids. And they're asking the question, okay, I've heard about this doctrine of the two kingdoms today, 
and give me some just handles, like give me something, like why would this matter for me as just a member of the church? What difference would this understanding make for me? Yeah, I think I would, I would help. I, I would probably first of all, want them to see that this, this really, this elevates the church and its ministry uh, that it, it, I hope it would help them to understand why the church is different from every other institution in this world and why it's so important and so crucial. Um, uh, and, uh, why they need to be looking to the church uh, as that that place where they receive the means of grace week by week, yeah. um, and and then on the other yeah. hand to say, look, th- this is also a way for you to understand that what you're doing in the rest of your life, in, in your ordinary vocations, whatever you want to call that, mm-hmm. that this too is meaningful. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 you don't have to look at these things in terms of bringing in the kingdom in order to understand them as meaningful mm-hmm. um and it it and, and and so it would help them i hope to see uh to see their vocations in a new light mm-hmm. uh, and i hope also that when they fail at their vocations or when you know, when things don't go well, mm-hmm. they're not failing to bring in the kingdom. They're not, mm. it, it doesn't mean that, uh, that somehow Christ's work is, you know, that, that they're bad instruments of Christ's redemptive work in this world, mm. right? I mean, this is part of what happens uh, in this life is that, you know, we, we try things, we fail at things sometimes, and God still has his purposes uh, in right. um, bringing yeah. us through these things. And, all we're called to do is be faithful, right? That's right. Be faithful yeah. in the various tasks God sets before us. And in a sense, we leave the results to him. And uh, we trust that he will continue to work out all things for our good and for his glory. And um, as we're faithful, he will use us as instruments to bless others in this world. Amen. He who began a good work. We don't complete it. He completes yeah. it. Well, we're going to move over to the Simple Reformanda podcast. Where we're going to have a little bit more of a lively conversation. We're going to deal with some common objections. And those are a lot of fun to this perspective of Reformed theology. Yes. <laughs> this doctrine of the two kingdoms. This doctrine of two kingdoms. You know, yeah. Justin, you were graciously rebuked. So and you took and it well. <laughs> I received it. And I will speak differently moving forward. Forever changed. Forever changed. That's Dr. right. Dr. Van Drunen, we really appreciate your time. Absolutely. And, uh, I know Absolutely. the will be encouraged by this conversation. If you'd like to join in this conversation, you can go to our website, theocast.org. And uh, we have a private podcast there. We have an app where you can come in and join in the conversation there as well. Thank you for listening. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you.